Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, you're in the right place. Today's buzz, big data, but a special kind of big data, big customer data. Lots to talk about. Let's get started. Companies are collecting everything possible about their customers and probably their prospects today. Buying preferences, online habits. What are they searching for? What are they browsing? What do they want? What kinds of surveys? What kinds of information and pictures do they want? Their level of satisfaction, their use usage habits, and reams and reams and reams of personal data, OMG. In fact, more data has been created in the last five years than in all prior years combined. Think about it. It is staggering. So a couple of questions come to mind. Are we making progress or are companies simply data hoarding without knowing what they really need to run their business? They're just grabbing that data. More questions. Will new technology make customer big data collection techniques obsolete? as we know them today, and what about those things called privacy and security that are still so important to the customers? I have a panel of experts who are going to speak to us on these topics today. You don't want to go away. This is important to companies of all sizes. Let's start off with Matt Healy. He's a principal analyst in TBR Software Practice. Matt sent me the following quote. Very interesting, very brief and to the point. Not all who wander are lost. Welcome to the show, Matt Healy. How are you today? I'm doing great, and thank you for having me, Bonnie. Pleasure, pleasure. Talk to me about this quote. I'm not sure where we're wandering, but take us out of the wilderness and bring us into big customer data, Matt. Go ahead, start us, please. So for me, the the thought of, you know, you have to have a destination, you have to know where you're going, and, you know, you have to walk and move purposefully uh, may not entirely be accurate. Uh, sometimes just wandering and just figuring out, and it's the journey and it's the, and it's the discovery in there that, that is more fun than the actual destination. Um, I learned a lot about not all who wander are lost last year when I hiked a 1,000 miles of the Appalachian Trail. We were all just wandering, but none of us were lost. And so when it comes to this type of, of analysis and the amount of data that we're collecting, sometimes just wandering around in the data and seeing what you can find can give you the best type of uh, insights. Interesting, Matt. Interesting perspective. It sounds like you're bringing in the concepts of perhaps creativity, imagination, curiosity. We've talked about that on some of our other shows, curious about where it can take you. So would you say that it's it's still in the state of art and not quite science, figuring out what to do with all this data as apropos to your wandering in the Appalachians? I don't think it's either art or science. I think to, to pigeonhole it like that's probably not as accurate. I think it is a combination of art and science, and it's when you pull the two of them together that you're going to get the most interesting piece, piece of it. You need to have a good scientific rigor to how you look at things, but you also have to be able to occasionally color outside the lines. And so I think it's those two things combined that will give organizations, when they're looking for what to do with their customer data, the most insight and the most value. I love the answer. I threw out art or science, and you came back with a combination. That's even better than what I had imagined. Thank you very much, Matt Healy. Good. And by the way, I have a question for you. Did you have a GPS and cell phones where you allowed your digital toys when you were wandering in the Appalachians? We have to know. So I did have a smartphone with me, 
and um, I was able to turn it on about once or twice a day for about three to five minutes a time uh, mm-hmm. because what you don't have in the, in the lean-tos and the huts is power. So uh, if you're going to be out for five or six days before you hit a town, you can't leave that thing on all the time because sooner or later the batteries are going to be dead and it's going to be worthless. And it was more of a safety device than it was a, uh, sure. anything else. Good. Sounds like you had a mix of art and science there, too, the art of knowing when to turn it on and the science of, damn, I'm running out of battery power. Very good. Thank you very much, Matt Healy. Let me bring on your co-panelist, John Kreisa. He leads the Partner in Strategic Marketing Initiatives at Open Source Leader Hortonworks. We don't know much about them. We'll find out during the show. And John Kreisa sent me the following quote. Sometimes it's smarter to be lucky than lucky to be smart. John Kreisa, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing great, Bonnie. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for joining me. Help me out with this. It's smarter to be lucky than lucky to be smart. Let's unravel this one. Talk to me. Sure. And this is a quote I uh, attribute or first heard, I'll say, from my uh, my grandfather as a kind of philosophy for how to live one's life and, um, you know, take things as they come. Uh, and, uh, you know, actually the reason I chose this quote was because companies, as you know, per the topic, I think, want to be smarter with their data. They don't want to be just lucky that they had a transaction, lucky that somebody came to their website, lucky that they happened to click on the right page, or lucky that they discovered that a piece of machinery needed, you know, that something needed uh, maintenance before they, uh, before they uh, uh, broke down. So they really want to um, use the data that they're collecting, this vast amount of data, and the ways that they're interacting with their customers um, and prospects to be smarter and, and do a better job at that. And, just, and, and that's really why I think uh, the, the tie-in here is to the, to the theme of the show today. So where does the luck come in? Talk to me about luck. Is this similar to what Matt Healy said about not all who wander are lost, that wandering can be good? And I brought in the concept of art and science and curiosity, imagination. How does lucky, how does luck come in? Do you hit the right data at the right time and then it becomes a scientific practice or how do you do that? Well, I think, you know, in collecting the, the, the amounts of data that are, that are being collected and can be collected with the technologies today, um, that, uh, that they want to kind of remove some of the luck out of it. I guess there's, there's some luck in the, in the data science in sifting through the piles of, of data to look for patterns that are useful in terms of doing a better job of, uh, of addressing customer needs. But, um, but I think that the overall goal is to kind of reduce some of that luck um, by using science in, uh, on the data. Thank you very much, John Kreisa. And let's bring on our third panelist today. It's Greg Smith. He's vice president and head of the SAP HANA and SAP Big Data Services Center of Excellence for SAP Americas. That's a very big business card. And Greg sent me the following quote in his own words. This is very interesting. In the last 20 years, Greg says, we have seen unbelievable advancements in computing capacity and a complete explosion in data where customers see the amount of data they produce grow exponentially. But can we honestly say we've seen the business processes evolve to keep up with these advancements? Great questions. Great, great opportunity for you to answer and bring us into your world. Greg Smith, welcome. And how are you today? Doing great, Bonnie. Thanks for having me. Oh, a pleasure. Talk to me. So let's let's dissect this a little bit. Unbelievable advancements in computing capacity and explosion in data in the past 20 years. What's your observation? Is this this is your direct observation from your career? Talk to me. It, it is. I've been in the. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to be in the, the software industry about 
22 years now. And, and uh, yeah, I remember being in business school looking at uh, a, a case study once that said, you know, in the last 50 years, something like 87% of the Fortune 500 companies uh, were no longer there in that span of 50 years. And I, I thought, how could that be? And then, you know, I look at that in comparison to where we were in, in computing and technology 20 years ago and where we are today, and it is so different. And, and to see companies evolve at such a different pace in adapting those technologies. It's, it's been rather remarkable. I mean, if you look in the, just in the course of really my career, I mean, a company like Google that didn't even exist when I started in the software industry, you know, went from not, not even existing to being, you know, a market cap of like, you know, $375 billion or something like that. And, and, uh, you know, you see that and you're like, wow, I, I, I really can't, uh, can't comprehend how fast uh, not just the technology is moving, but even the the uh, the various different uh, elements of business. You know, you look at the business that Google's, and you you could argue that that didn't even exist 20 years ago. Absolutely. I have a question. We're continuing to break down your quote. Greg, you say, customers see the amount of data they produce grow exponentially. Now, this says to me that we as customers, all of us are in one way or another, we're aware that we're producing something called data. I don't know if the person, average person on the street, is there is there such a thing as an average person on the street anymore? If they would say, yes, I'm producing a lot of data. So talk to me about what this means. Well, a couple of things. For one, you know, that that data may have been being produced over time. We just never had the, uh, you know, the realistic means of capturing it or, or storing it, uh, you know, is one thing. Uh, the other reality is, is, you know, even the concept of, of what a customer is. I mean, if you look at historically, like in a supply chain area, you know, they were concerned about, uh, you know, maybe what was in their warehouse or something like that. And today the technology is there where they could have visibility literally to everything that's from their warehouse, you know, to the, to the end user consumer, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the technology is there. That doesn't necessarily mean that, that society is ready for that. It doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean that the uh, business models are ready for that, obviously. Okay, so that covers the rest of your quote. Have we seen the business processes evolve to keep up with advancements? Thank you, Greg. Good points all, Matt, John, and Greg. I have a very tough question for the three of you. I warned you in advance, so let's see if you did your homework. What's in your cup today, or what do you wish you were drinking? And those who are wondering why I ask this, it's because the future of business with Game Changers Radio, which, by the way, is presented by SAP Services, is part of our umbrella series called Coffee Break with Game Changers. Hence, I like to know what my guests are drinking or what they wished was in their cup at the time of the show. We're live today, by the way. It is Thursday, April 17, 2014. So, Matt Healy, what are you drinking or what do you wish was in the cup instead of what really is? Talk to me. Well, actually, what's in the cup is what I want, exactly what I want. It is my second cup of morning coffee, which is good for coffee break. And this morning, I decided I would go with a Tanzanian peaberry type of coffee. Um, it was, it's a little sweeter than your average coffee. It's got a little citrus and a little bit of peach flavors to it. 
Um, and so I figured that was that was appropriate for the temperature outside and, and my mood and, and everything where I want. Not highly acidic, not very strong, and not one of those jump-starting you types of uh, pots of coffee, but, but a little mellower, a little sweeter, and, and just, you know, a little bit calming, uh, as calming as coffee can be. Well, when you're an addict like I am, it is. So that's what's in my, uh, in my cup right now. I assume it's still loaded with caffeine. Would you say oh, so, Matt? Absolutely. What would be absolutely. the point of coffee without caffeine? <laughs> they don't let me have caffeine on show days, and you probably don't have to wonder why. I've never heard anybody describe coffee quite the way you did. Caffeine but calming. Citrus and peach. Very interesting. Uh, could you or somebody near you tweet the name of the coffee you're drinking? We might want to look that up. Very interesting. Thank you, Matt. John Chrysa, what are you drinking today? Or Yes, well, you know, I, I'm... I'm Wish I were having a cup of coffee, just like Matt. Maybe as well described as Matt. Uh, well done. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I am currently drinking a, a cup of Gatorade. Believe it or not, uh, although it's early here on the West Coast, um, I, uh, I've been out for my morning run and, uh, and I'm now back in and, uh, and having Gatorade and re- rehydrating before I uh, start down the caffeine path. Also an addict, but uh, want to make sure I'm, uh, I'm staying healthy before I get there. <laughs> John, well, yeah, this is how long was your yeah. run as a fellow yeah. runner? Was it a good workout this morning? It was a five miles this morning. Yeah. Oh, okay. wonderful! Sorry, mine was three and a half last night, and, and tonight is tonight is five to five and a half. So, Great. oh, nice you guys are another runner. You guys are bragging. Well, I did two hours of ballroom dancing nonstop last night. I don't know if that right. counts with just a little does. bit of a little bit of uh, club soda. I was going to say, John, very coincidentally, we first heard on all of our we're doing four live shows a week now for SAP. We first heard on Tuesday show. I think it was HR Trends with Game Changers. One of the women uh, walks in the Avon Breast Cancer Walk and in the, um, I guess, another one, another famous walk. And mm-hmm. she became a Gatorade fanatic by by using Gatorade during these walks to rehydrate while she was walking and running. And this is the first time on over 200 shows, I think, that anybody mentioned Gatorade. And now you're the second one in the <laughs> in same week. week. How <laughs> about that? We're seeing a resurgence of Gatorade, just like we see a resurgence of Albert Einstein quotes which is not on today's show. Thank you, Greg Smith, not to leave you out, and you don't have to top those, but what are you drinking today? Well, you know, what's in my cup is probably the opposite end of the coffee spectrum uh, that you just heard about. I think the uh, coffee I picked up at the local convenience store this morning uh, might have been on the burner for a couple days here. So I think uh, <laughs> I think if I wouldn't have got it, it would have... Uh, it would have been used to, to maybe, uh, you know, oh, fix no. some of the roads with a harsh Midwest winter. So oh, I, I no. think it's going to stay in my cup, and I'll, I'll get something different late. You know? <laughs> I thought maybe they were using it to wash the floor. Uh, Dave Fowler, who sponsors this series, says, in his cup, Starbucks Via on the Appalachian Trail at Skyline. I'm sure somebody can decipher that. I don't know what Andy Grieg is drinking today. Andy, if you want to tweet that. But our engineer, Brad, says all he's drinking is pineapple orange juice, and that sounds pretty darn good, so thank you for that. Uh, I'm going to say right now we're ready to take our first break. Our topic today is the future of big customer data. When is enough? And we might add, what are you doing with it to make any sense out of it? Today you're listening to us live on the future of business with Game Changers presented by SAP Services. This is number seven in a 13-week series. We're delighted to be here at the halfway mark. I'm still Bonnie D. Graham. I plan to be after the break. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. When we come back, it's going to be a 30-minute nonstop. Stop Roundtable Marathon. So whatever you're drinking, fill it up because you're going to need the strength to either be speaking on the panel or to be listening. We're going to take our break now. 
spread out. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. The pace of innovation is moving faster than ever, and the future of business will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. Factors as diverse as insights from growing volumes of data, the new global pool of talent, resource scarcity, and business networks and supply chains are shaping the definition of future success. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. The Future of Business with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to The Future of Business with Game Changers. Here we are, and our topic today is the future of big customer data. When is enough? And speaking of Twitter, we want to thank Dave Fowler for tweeting words of wisdom from our panel. Please join us at hashtag SAP Radio. We also want to thank Cheryl Custer, who is tweeting along, and SAP Services. I believe that's Andy Grieg is tweeting along. Let's start this marathon roundtable right now. I'm going to start off with TBR's Matt Healy on the panel today. Matt, you sent me the following notes before the show. We're going to dive in deep here, and then I'm going to ask your co-panelists to come into the water, come into the pool, and, and share their thoughts on this. We're going to start off with the premise that more data does not always mean better forecasting. And you add, in many cases, people confuse the amount of data analyzed with the quality of the analysis. Matt Healy, get us started, please. Excellent. Thank you, Bonnie. I, I do think that, and I, and I do believe that we're collecting a lot of data, and I think that everyone understands that we're collecting a lot of data, and we have this tendency as, as humans to think more is better. If I have a model that factors in 150 aspects of what my customer wants, then that will be better than a model that only factors in three or five aspects of what a customer wants or, or aspects of their, their social media platform. Uh, uh, profile or their social media persona. And it's my contention that more data does not necessarily equal a better forecast. The right data equals the, the best forecast. And so in some cases, a multi-factor, very complicated analysis that goes into a lot of different aspects of a customer and of their profile may be entirely appropriate and may be the best way to forecast that particular aspect, but that's not always true. And so as we start collecting all of this data and as we start beginning to analyze it, we really, as business leaders, have to figure out what is the right data, what is the data that's actually going to move the needle, and don't just assume that because one model or one approach 
factors in more data, it's going to result in better uh, forecasts. It may, it may not. It may result in better forecasts, but it may not be cost effective. It may end up taking too long and being, and being too complicated and not able to do things. It's really making sure the right data is there and we understand what we're trying to accomplish more is, not always, more is not necessarily always better in terms of the type of analysis that we need to accomplish. Thank you. John Kreisa at Hortonworks, what do you think about what Matt said? Chime in, please. Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, I would say that, uh, you know, I can't disagree that more is not always better. Uh, but I think that the data uh, that, that a lot of companies are trying to collect right now is more contextual data. Um, you know, we see companies collecting what I'll call pre-transactional data. What are the things that I'm, that I'm, in, how am I interacting with my customers before they actually make a purchase? And it, it doesn't necessarily lend itself to per, improved forecasting, but it is lending itself to doing just a better job of getting the customer to or prospect to what they're really looking for, maybe in the ways that I'm interacting with them, or better understanding all the ways that I'm interacting with that customer, really, again, to do a better job of, of servicing them, right, to, to, to get them to the service that they're looking for, to get them to the product that they're looking for, or what have you. And I think it's, it's sort of collecting that contextual data around a transaction is really the thing that, that most we see a lot of companies uh, trying to do today to, to uh, improve their business. Thank you. Greg Smith, I want you to chime in, and I noticed in your notes you said the important thing about big data is not that you can store a lot of data, but what you can do with it. So do you agree that context is important, that it's quality of the analysis, not just the quantity? Please chime in. It is, uh, and, you know, I think it comes down to potential. And, and what I mean by potential is, you know, just because I collect a lot of data, you know, any time I have that many signals in the data, you know, some of them may be misleading, right? I mean, you know, the classic example, my, you know, my sales went up and it's sunny outside does not necessarily mean there's a correlation between the two. So I think, you know, the inherent risk we have is when you collect so much data, uh, you know, it's that much more challenging to figure out what's meaningful in that data. And that's, you know, collecting the data I think is inherently good because even if it's not contextual for what I'm looking at right now, it may be tomorrow. So it's not necessarily the issue of the data. It's just, you know, people need to be careful that they're they're analyzing what they think they're analyzing and that there is a strong correlation there. Thank you. I want to move to a slightly different direction and go back to something I talked about in the opening of the show. One of my comments was that more data was created in the last five years than in all prior years combined. That's scary. It's mind-boggling. It's exciting. It can be overwhelming. So I want to go to something that John Kreiss has sent me in your notes. You said IDC, quoting IDC, says that by 2020, the amount of data will have doubled, I would add, again. And you note that in 2012, the digital, digital universe was 20 zettabytes with a Z. 2020, the digital universe will be 40 zettabytes. So talk to us about the amount of data. Let's get our arms around this concept. John Kreisa? It's, um, it's, it's probably a little hard to even just visualize or think about that vast mm-hmm. amount of data that's being collected um, uh, because it's, it is such a, uh, a large amount. And, and uh, you know, you look at quantities and numbers that are thrown out by organizations like uh, IDC, it's it's really mind-boggling, but it's easy to think about in terms of and, and conceive that that is, is what's really happening when you think about all the places that data are created, you know, from humans and the so-called Internet of Things. The, mm-hmm. the quote actually in my, my notes actually say that 
um, that the data, a lot of that will come from the Internet of Things, the so-called connected, you know, the fact that your refrigerator will be connected to the Internet and send back, you know, uh, data on what you need to shop and, and, and how, you, how usage patterns and all of the smart meters that are, um, that are connected and all the ways that data is collected off the web or cell phones um, and any of the other ways that, uh, that that data is being generated. So it's, it's easy to see um, once you start thinking about all of the different places where data can and will be generated in the future that, uh, that we can get to those numbers. John, I want to put this a little more in context in terms of our listeners. We have a broad base of listeners in over 100 countries that we're aware of so far, and they're probably all different sizes of companies, what I like to call the big behemoth enterprises, every range of the spectrum of SME, small to mid-sized enterprises. We have a lot of startups that listen to us around the world. So let me pose this question to you, and then I'd like my other, our other panelists to chime in. question is, is the amount of data, this potential customer data gathering, is this impacting small companies as well as big companies, i.e., if you're a small startup, let's say a staff of 20, out of the gate you're hitting the enterprise market big time, and you need to know what your customers and your prospects need from you, you're going to go out and collect data. Would you be amassing the level of data or the amount, the depth, the quantity that a big company would, or is it scaled by company size? Help me with this. Um, great question, Bonnie. So Thank actually, we, we see that uh, even small companies can collect a large amount of data, um, and that's you know partially just because of, of where um, where we're working out of and what a lot of the early adopters of, of some of the leading-edge technologies are working here in Silicon Valley. Um, so a small number of companies, small number of uh, employees, small company, but interacting with users via the web, um, and that's generating a lot of data by interacting with a large number of customers. So it's, it's partially the scale that you can get from uh, interacting with customers via mobile devices or through the web. That means just because your company is small doesn't mean there isn't a lot of data that can be very useful to you uh, as a company and, and how you interact with those customers. Okay. Matt Healy, you want to chime in on this, please, in terms of the sheer volume of data, the volume velocity, how it impacts different sizes of companies, and, and uh, how it's continuing to grow exponentially? I, I, I think that it's, it's obvious that it's growing exponentially and it's going to continue, and it's my belief that it should continue because storage and the ability to capture all this data has become incre incredibly uh, low cost and very, very cheap. Um, where I think the impact comes on it is in the ability to use it, the ability to analyze it, and the ability to look at it. It is my belief that you should capture as much as you possibly can and store as much as you possibly can because you never know where the grain of uh, – you know, that nugget of gold in terms of, wow, there's real insight in here is going to become, um, is going to come from. And so in the beginning, you said, is it art or science? And I said, it's both. The science is in capturing it, categorizing it correctly, making sure that you have data that you can use and that you can look at and you can actually go through and, and real scientific rigor associated with that. The art comes from the thinking outside of the box and the applying um, the context to it. Is it sunny and my sales are up? Is there a correlation there? Well, most people know, but if you're selling patio furniture, well, then maybe, yeah, there's a correlation there. So you have to understand the context of what it is you're doing with it and then be able to figure out what problem you're trying to solve and then how to look into that data. So capture everything. Use some, use some human intelligence in terms of mm -hmm. context and what you're doing to get some analysis out of it. 
don't just rely on – you can't manage a business just by a spreadsheet or just by um, an analytic tool. I, I just don't believe that. Not anymore. We're going to get into later in the discussion, I want to make sure we cover who the people are who are in charge of, at companies of all sizes, in charge of approaching how to handle the data. How does it get stored? What gets stored? What gets collected? What do you apply with context when? But in the meantime, I want to continue this particular thread with Greg Smith from SAP. And Greg, I'm going to throw another twist into the conversation based on some notes you sent me that go very much with what Matt and what uh, John have been talking about. So Greg, you said... History is littered with companies that were acquired or went out of business because they failed to adapt and change to new technologies and advancements. And here's your comment. In addition, I look at companies that have not evaluated how big data is impacting their core business processes, and I wonder why they think it's not going to happen to them. So let's talk about companies that don't embrace and don't engage and don't think about this. Greg, why don't you start us off with this? Well, in many cases, it may not be a, uh, a lack of willingness to embrace it. It may be a lack of urgency. And I think mm. most of the customers I, I talk to know they need to do something with all of their data, and they, 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 they see that their competitors are doing things, but, but they may lack the, uh, you know, they may lack the urgency that's needed there. And, and the reality is, is, you know, if you look at, you know, I think I earlier alluded to, you know, the turnover in the Fortune 500 companies as technology advances. I think you're just going to see that turnover happen that much more rapidly, meaning, uh, you know, I don't think we know what the new business models are necessarily going to be five years from now that, you know, are, are going to be introduced by this data. You see some of the companies that maybe historically were, saw themselves as, as, you know, manufacturing companies that may now consider themselves both manufacturing and, and data providers or tech providers. Uh, if you look at some of the advances with things like smart farming and things like that, uh, I think, you know, all the, uh, you know, we're, we're pretty amazed by the, you know, the growth in data and things like that. I, I think we're going to be even more amazed by what people do with that data uh, going forward and how they evolve some of these business models. Uh, and the reality is, is, is just like anything in life, there's going to be some that are, that are more equipped to deal with that and more adept at dealing with that. And, uh, you know, the ones that deal with it more urgently, uh, and more successfully are going to, are going to be, you know, those companies that, that are the next Fortune 500 most likely. Thank you, Greg. John Kreis at Hortonworks. We don't know what Hortonworks does. At least I didn't until I met you on a prep call a couple of days ago. Why don't you give us a, a 50,000 foot view, a couple of sentences about what you do, and then, and talk to me about what Greg Smith just added to the conversation, please. Sure. Thanks, Bonnie. So, um, uh, Hortonworks is a leader in an open source technology that helps companies, uh, take and capture and analyze big data. And that open source technology is called Apache Hadoop. It has a, a funny name. Um, but it is a, it's a technology that was born out of the big web properties, the ones that started interacting with their customers and prospects, so kind of Google and Yahoo and t- Facebook and Twitter. Those companies that realized they had these big data problems and started working with it, that was really the genesis of, of this technology. And now big enterprises are looking to consider, not, not just big, but enterprises of all sizes are looking to take this and, and use, do more with their data, store it and analyze it. So. So we help companies do that. 
Um, okay. And then as far as, uh, as, far as Greg's uh, comments, I would agree. I think the you know, companies that don't get going and start an initiative around you know, figuring out how to capture and analyze some of this data sort of do it at their own peril. Um, you know, they, they don't, if, they, if they don't have that urgency and they can't develop that internally, um, then, uh, then you know, the, the other, their competition, those that do, will, will have the advantage. And I think that's, that's just the reality of how business has changed, you know, over the last, say, five or uh, so years. So I, I think it's something that, that they have to develop that sense of urgency if you don't have it already. And it's, it can be relatively easy to get going. It doesn't have to be expensive or a large project. Um, that's you know, by and large, uh, something we see in terms of open source. It's a, it's a relatively low, uh, low friction way to get going. Okay. Matt Healy, want to chime in? What do you think? The companies are doomed that don't get what we're talking about. Is there a chance for them to come back and pull back from that precipice and learn, even by listening to a show like this, get inspired? What do you think? How, how can they embrace, engage, move forward? I, I absolutely 100% agree that companies that are not leveraging the analysis and the analytics capabilities that this data is providing will most likely not be uh, the ones that are going to be business leaders. So if there are companies that are not doing that and you're publicly traded, let me know. I'd love to short your stock um, because I think <laughs> that you're going to be in trouble. Um, but I think that uh, getting started with big data and analytics, first of all, a lot of the software vendors uh, that are out there are doing some pretty amazing things in terms of bifurcating this market. And by that, I mean you're seeing a lot of very, easier, very easy and lower-hanging fruit abilities to do some analysis around customer data, around supply chain, around all of these different areas of your business so that the barriers to get into it either from open source or from your traditional large enterprise applications vendors is getting pretty low. So you can get in relatively quickly. The stumbles that I'm beginning to see aren't necessarily in terms of getting in. They're People get in, they see some amazing results right off the bat, at which point they discover this brand new hammer in the toolbox, in which case every business problem looks like a nail that can be solved with analytics and big data. It is a great tool. I've got a wonderful hammer in my toolbox. It's not the only one that's there. And so I think that as you get in and you start learning it, you need to understand the power of this of, of big data and of analytics, but you also have to understand the limitations, and you can't just solve every problem with one tool. Look at what the problem you're supposed to solve is or what you're trying to solve, and then figure out what role does big data and analytics play? What role does traditional analysis play? What role do all of the other types of uh, approaches to solving business problems play because if you just think that big data will it's 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 a great tool it is not a silver bullet okay i want to talk a little more about the urgency and i i posed a question to the panel i'm going to throw this out for everybody nobody in particular and i hope you all want to chime in question is who in a company let's start with a mid-sized enterprise who should be in charge of this vision that we have all this data coming and that it is doubling and tripling it's huge what do we store what do we store for potential future use how do we use predictive analytics to say we really might be able to leverage that how urgent is it what big what kind of a department does it take to embrace this and do something about it before a company fails, as we just mentioned? So who wants to talk about who is in charge of all this? Who has to be the visionary and who have to be the worker bees, pardon me, to actually do something? Uh, John, Greg? Yeah. 
Yeah, Matt? sure. I'll jump in. This is John. I, uh, Please. I, the, uh, the, you know, we're seeing, a, uh, interestingly enough, a title at uh, companies of various sizes of like, a chief data officer. I mean, literally somebody who um, is in charge of understanding what data should be kept, what should be done. There's privacy policies and issues around archiving, all the different aspects of what should be kept, how, who should have access to it. Um, and, you know, that's one of the people, I think, at, at companies. Uh, that that are starting to think about this in, in companies that are sort of forward thinking. Um, we also see people like chief architects who are also thinking about the overall infrastructure of of the company. You know, somebody who not just the data aspects, but the the other pieces of technology. To to, to Matt's point, it's not just one uh, not just one technology, but a range of technologies which provide the access, the storage, the analysis um, of the data. So I think there's, there's a couple probably that, that we see. And I want to I want to just mm-hmm. jump in here. I, I, I know Bonnie usually cue people up, but but no, I no, echo, I, w- I want an open discussion. Please go ahead. Go ahead. Matt. I want to I want to echo that, but I also want to add that while you may have a chief data science or as, as an architect or somebody along those in charge of it, that person has to be heavily incented or has to be a very collaborative person by nature because if you're going to use business this data and analytics capability to solve a business problem, you are going to need the lob executives who are who understand that particular business problem and the context, and I keep coming back to the right word because I think it's super mm-hmm. critical, uh, the context of the problem that they're trying to solve. So if you're trying to solve an issue associated with sales and marketing, don't have the chief data scientist working independent of the VP of sales or the VP of marketing because those guys or gals know what it takes to survive in the sales industry in their sorry in the sales department of their particular industry and verticals vary sales of cars is different than sales of um you know software so this person has to work with them and has they have to be on level playing fields yeah you can have an architect in charge of it heavy input heavy amount of respect from the lobs that they're trying to trying to assist yeah i, I agree with that I, I think you know the right answer is Everyone in a in a business, you know, has a stake in this data, right? I think I think you're right. You're going to have the architects, and you're going to have the classic IT departments, things like that. Will do, you know, a lot of the uh, work around, you know, how do we deal with this technologically? But you know, the reality is, is if a business leader, you know, whether it be uh, the head of sales or the head of marketing, you know, doesn't take a direct interest in in how they're going to use that data and, and how it's relevant for their business, I, I think you're going to you're going to lead to a lack of effectiveness there. So I, I agree. You know, the technology side is is really going to be the ones that you know do a lot of the uh, execution of of capturing and, and what you do with that data. But someone needs to say, you know, start the direction of the business that says, this is how we're going to use it and, and how we're going to integrate it into our, into our business approach. Right, and, and I, I just think that, you know, you need, and the reason I, I came back to the lobs is you're going to need the buy-in from the line of business executives. I do not uh, believe that this is a problem that can be solved with, with a thou shalt from the CEO or, or someone in the senior management that says, you will collect this data, you will use it. If the, um, if the line of business executive who's being comped on whatever they're being, you know, uh, head of sales being comped on, on total sales, isn't bought into the process from the beginning, doesn't feel like they have a voice, they may comply just barely enough to be able to check the box at the end of the, at the, end of the day on the performance review. But, so that's why I think you really need to understand the business problem and 
make sure that the data scientist in the IT department works with those people for whom this is going to be provide an advantage. Thank you. Good, good conversation. I like the way you all jumped in. And, Matt, that's the way we love for the conversation to go. I want to introduce one more topic I covered in my intro. I think it's very important. I know you all agree. And we, yeah, we're going to take a break in three minutes. So let's go around the table in any particular order. Let's each take a minute, please, to address this. And I'm going to go to some of Greg Smith's talking points here. Greg, you say, as we continue to drive tech innovations and the revolution of big data and the Internet of Things, we can lose sight of the societal implications just because we can capture vast amounts of data about our customers, it doesn't mean they welcome it and accept it. And then we get to the two topics I brought up in the beginning. What about privacy? What about security? And Greg says it cannot be underestimated as we evaluate use cases. Greg Smith, give me a minute on this, please, and then we'll have Matt and John chime in. How important is big security, big privacy of big customer data? Greg? Well, I think it's vital because the reality is is the end consumer isn't quite sold on this, right? And, you know, I, I know one particular use case comes to mind with, with smart shell technology where, you know, they can actually sense the type of individual who's coming up to a shelf in the store and, uh, you know, use a lot of off-the-shelf technology and, and predict, you know, is, is this, a you know, an adolescent boy or an elderly woman and things like that. You know, the technology is there, but... Just because it's there doesn't mean that end user uh, is comfortable with it, right? And and is uh, welcoming. So if I'm in a, you know, if I'm in a store and, and you're going to predict that, well, I should give you an offer on a uh, chocolate bar as opposed to something healthy, you know, that that individual immediately starts thinking, well, what what do you think mm-hmm. about me and, and things like that? <laughs> and, and you know, we we look at at, at sometimes technology with a blind eye to the end user and their willingness for that data to be shared. And, you know, sometimes, you know, like we all know that things get captured without uh, us knowing at times or us being willing at times, but uh, that doesn't necessarily mean society is always ready for it. And, and I don't, I don't think we can underestimate that. And, and I have to say that Matt Healy not only can talk, but he can tweet at the same time because I see him on our stream at hashtag SAP Radio, and he says he's not sure he wants the refrigerator tracking his usage stats. Bravo for Matt. So, Matt, you have to chime in on this. I'm going to give you a minute. Go ahead. Absolutely, and, and that's that's the lead-in to, 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 you know, a thought that I've always had, right, because we talk about smart and connected devices, and I'm not sure I want to go up to my refrigerator one night and have it tell me, you know, I was talking to the scale this morning. Are you sure you need the cake? You know, I'm, I'm not sure I need that out of my refrigerator, okay? You know, just uh, just across the board. Um, I don't think the end user is entirely comfortable, and I think that if they knew what was really being captured and the extent of what was really being captured, they would be even less comfortable. I think that we're moving in this direction largely because the end users don't know what's being captured. And when they find out, they're... Um, mm-hmm. They're a little bit put off by it. I think that, and I don't want to get into the politics, but I think Eric Snowden did us a wonderful favor by exposing what he exposed, whether or not you like it or dislike it or agree he should have done it or disagree. But I think it's time for the public to understand just how much data is being collected about us from everything from their smartphone to the video monitors in grocery stores to 
you know, Google buying Nest, so now Google knows what temperature I set my house to. Mm-hmm. It just it keeps going and going and going. And I'm not necessarily sure I want Apple or Google or anybody else who's collecting this data to effectively be my overlord and start telling me what I want based on my usage patterns. They, they it's don't, called they your don't conscience. It's called your conscience. I think we have enough consciences telling us what to do. I want to quickly get John Kreisa in before we go to break. John, please take a minute, no more than that. And what do you think about the privacy and security issue we're bringing up right now? Sure. It's absolutely important and uh, and vital. I, uh, I agree that I don't want the scale talking to my refrigerator. I think companies need to be uh, open with their policies uh, so that everybody knows. I think they need, uh, you know, what data can or will be collected. I think they also need to be clear with things like opt-in policies because there are people, there are benefits, right, to, to giving up some of the data, um, you know, sometimes I would like somebody to be able uh, or, or a company to be able to remind me and recommend something that might be a, you know, a, a gift for someone, right? That, that there are some advantages to, uh, to some of these things if they know some patterns in history. So it's not necessarily all bad. I, we recently had a conference in Europe, and, you know, the European um, feeling in terms of society towards collecting data is quite different in the way that they treat data and, and the way that they, they legislate that. So there, of course, as you said, there's more than 100 country, uh, countries listening in on the, on the podcast. Where you are, you also have to know the local, um, the local uh, sensitivities to, right. um, to, to collecting that data. So it's, it's going to vary widely. Americans tend to be a little bit more open, but I think companies have to be very clear, you know, kind of per – uh, Greg's point, Google and the others, they have to be very clear with what they are collecting and, and make sure that we know that and we can go in kind of with our eyes fully open about what they're going to do with that data. Thank you, John. And I'm thinking not only context but culture, and I think you just brought that up. Guess what? We're going to take a very fast break, about 90 seconds when we come back. I'm going to ask Matt Healy at TBR, John Kreisa at Hortonworks, and Greg Smith at SAP to look ahead to either 2019 or, if you like the idea that hindsight is 2020, go six years out to 2020, what do you think we'd be talking about if we met again at that point in the future in terms of the future of big customer data? When is enough? Ready to go to break? Brad? Out. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. The pace of innovation is moving faster than ever, and the future of business will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. Factors as diverse as insights from growing volumes of data, the new global pool of talent, resource scarcity, and business networks and supply chains are shaping the definition of future success. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. The Future of Business with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to The Future of Business with Game Changers. 
the future is now. We're talking to our three panelists, Matt Healy, John Kreisa, and Greg Smith, about the future of big customer data. We've covered a wide range of topics, and now it's time to peek into the crystal ball and look ahead five or six years. If you like hindsight is 2020, be my guest. And leap ahead six years, Matt Healy, what do you think would be different about this conversation if we met again in 2020? Talk to me two minutes on the clock. Go. Okay, so I'm going to go out to 2020, and I think that that big data and the analytics capabilities that are coming to the forefront right now are one of the cornerstones of what I think is a fundamental shift that's going on in the way that business is being run. You combine that with an ever-increasing acceptance and reliance on technology, um, especially by new new uh new employees entering the workforce, the millennials. We're currently working on a research project here that draws the line at people who had Facebook when they, grew, when they went to high school. I think that technology mm-hmm. and big data and analytics is becoming so much more ingrained in the workforce that's entering that we're going to see some real kind of fundamental shifts in the way that business is done and the way that people use analytics. They are going to be spectacular. They are going to be spectacular on the level of Amazon.com and uh, around Google and all these innovative new business models. They're also going to be spectacular on the use of big data to create subprime mortgages and to tranche those up in a certain way. That was a spectacular result. It wasn't a positive spectacular result. So I think we're going to see some really innovative and really creative things. I have no idea what we're going to be talking about, but I can tell you I have a feeling it's going to be big. So whatever we're talking about, um, it's going to be remember when so-and-so who was now just graduating from insert name of whatever your local university is here came up with this idea. And six years from now, it's going to be how did we ever live without? And Mm -hmm. those things will be amazing. And then there will also be the conversation about remember when so-and-so did this and then ended up tanking the economy for a year and a half. But there will, so it will be big both ways, and, and I think that that's really what's coming down the pipeline. Thank you very much. It sounds, from your, your conversation, Matt, it sounds like millennials may be at the forefront, in fact, of caring about big data, big security, about the proper kinds of analysis. What have we got? What might we need to do with it in the future? Predictive. And they may be cutting-edge, leading-edge data scientists in that part of the organization. Thank you very much. John Kreisa, Hortonworks, give you two minutes. Go. Sure. Thanks. Bonnie, and I think, um, you know, I'll go out about 2020, and uh, I think by then we'll be talking about Skynet being uh, being live, <laughs> to, to make reference to, uh, to um, Terminator. But the uh, I think I agree with Matt. The things that will be happening in six years will be beyond kind of what we even imagine now, and I think that's driven by technology. Um, technology is uh, enabling a whole new realm of applications um, just like the kinds of applications that are being used currently in business today, um, but we'll take it to the next step in terms of uh, being more proactive and predictive from all that data that's being collected. I have a couple of kids who are digital natives, and you know they, they don't think about anything else but um, using digital technology and are really very comfortable with it. They'll enter into the workforce just like many of the people that, that Matt is uh, studying in his research, and I think that the, the expectation for how they interact with data and how they interact with technology 
um, is uh, is changing rapidly, and it is beyond those that, at the generation before who are working now can even really consider. And I think that's that's something that will that will change the way companies run, the way we interact with technology, the way we you know purchase uh, items, the way we uh, do really almost everything in our in our uh, life. And I think. Though there may be some definitely negatives and there may be some market tanks and things that are caused by overly active technology, um, the, the overall net benefit will be good for society, I believe. Thank you very much. Greg Smith, I give you 90 seconds, just edging up to two minutes because we're close to the end. So go ahead, Greg Smith, predictions, go. Yeah, I think five years from now, the connected world will be here, and, and I think uh, our panelists were expressing concern about the uh, refrigerator being connected, I, I think I think it will be connected, and I think everything will. I think you draw a parallel to uh, the mobility world. You know, the iPhone came out, what, like not even seven years ago, the first iPhone, and if you look at what we do today with some of the smartphone devices and things like that, I, I think we're all going to be very, very surprised with just how connected the world will be in five years, and, uh, you know, some things you may question the necessity for that thing being connected, but the reality is it will be, you know, low enough cost to do that connection that someone's going to want it. So I think we're all going to be surprised just how much data is going to grow, how much our connectivity is going to grow uh, going forward. Thank you, Greg. Right on the money. I appreciate that. I have one minute. I'm going to use it well. I have my own predictions. Monday, we start the cycle all over again with financial excellence with Game Changers, 10 a.m. Pacific. Tuesday, it's not Belgium. It's time for HR Trends with Game Changers. If you're old enough, you get that. Tuesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific. Wednesday is our flagship show, Coffee Break with Game Changers. Wednesdays, 8 a.m. Pacific. And next Thursday, we'll be right back here with more of Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP Services. Thank you, Matt Healy at T. Thank you, John Kreis at Hortonworks. Thank you, Greg Smith at SAP. And shout-outs to Dave Fowler at SAP Services. Thank you so much for sponsoring the show and coming up with great topics and even more spectacular guests. Thank you to Elizabeth Hedstrom-Henlin at TBR for shepherding us in and out of your, your cadre of wonderful people, bringing us people like Matt Healy. Appreciate that, and all the best to you and your addition to your family. Cheryl Custer at Hortonworks, thank you so much for being on board. And Malcolm Kimberlin at SAP. And to our tweeters, Dave, Andy Green. And Cheryl Custer, as well as we had one good one from Matt Ely. Thank you to Brad and the Business Channel team for getting us on the air and keeping us there. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Talk to you next Monday on Financial Excellence with Game Changers. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. And please join host Bonnie D. Graham again next Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.